Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gersten Calgary. And I'm Sandy Garasino. And I'm on the road, which is why the sound quality might not be exactly what we're used to because I forgot to pack my sound equipment. So we're iPhoning it in here today. And I am looking outside and there's actually snow on my ground. So, you know, I'm a little bitter, a little bitter. <laughs> but, you know, it is November. So that seems reasonable, I suppose. It's just that I'm seeing all these beautiful images from Ontario where there's like still leaves on the trees and shit. And I'm like, well, fuck you then. It'll be winter everywhere before we know it. And then it'll be spring. Hopefully springtime brings an actual Biden administration. A Biden presidency does have me thinking about the energy sector and the future of Alberta's Keystone Pipeline. Biden's climate policy does seem to have a bit of a stamp of approval from the progressive wing of the U.S. politics, even though, you know, it certainly isn't as far reaching as the Green New Deal. Uh, so, of course, I can't really help but wonder what that'll mean for Canada and Alberta. And to get into this, we're bringing on Hadrian Merkins Kirkwood, senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. But first, the headlines. On my radar this week is an announcement from Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino. Canada is creating a new measure to help students and young people in Hong Kong, a work permit designed to help them get permanent Canadian residency faster. Mendocino said Canadian citizens and permanent residents in Hong Kong can return to Canada at any time, and Ottawa will expedite any documents they need. This announcement was part of Canada's response to the Chinese national security law in Hong Kong enacted in June this year. The law is widely seen as one that threatens democratic protections. The national security law criminalizes secession, breaking away from the countries, subversion, undermining the power or authority of the central government, terrorism, using violence or intimidation against people, and collusion with foreign or external force. Of course, what actions qualifies those categories are not well-defined, and that is where the rubber hits the road in Hong Kong right now. On my radar this week is the Wexit party telling HuffPost that they will be modeling itself after the Bloc Québécois. Wexit has also rebranded itself as the Maverick Party, in case you hadn't heard. Its leader, Jay Hill, has announced that it will be preparing candidates for a possible federal election in 
50 ridings. 30 of them will be in Alberta and nine in Saskatchewan, five in BC and in Manitoba, he told the Western Standard. Hale is a former federal conservative MP who retired in 2010. He told HuffPost that he thought the bloc has been very effective in representing its constituents. He also said that in his time as federal MP, he thought he had to water down the policies in order to appeal to where the greatest votes and members are, and that's Central Canada. So that's largely true, and I know that there's a bit of a, of a strain of sort of uh, separatism and independentism, is probably a better way of putting it, uh, in the federal conservative party. But, you know, I think it's still worthwhile to note, Sandy, that Wexit, as far as I can tell, is a pretty fringe movement, and I think it's only gotten more fringe since covid the decline in the economic situation in Alberta, the dependence on the federal government to manage through COVID, at least financially, I think has really refocused priorities for a lot of people in Alberta and made them start to realize that, you know, maybe being in a, in a confederation has its upsides after all. But we'll see whether or not that sentiment sticks around once COVID does not. I feel like the Wexit party survives to a certain extent on the delusion that they are somehow going to get BC to go along with them so that they will somehow be a Western, a true Western Canada party, which of course, without BC, they are not. And that is absolutely a non-starter in British Columbia. There are parts of British Columbia, of course, that has a lot of sympathy, but it's a non-starter in BC. And with a Biden presidency, there's there's nowhere to go. Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, I do think the interior BC, you know, if you were to look at, a, at an actual Wexit federal party that was viable in a, in a in a totally crazy hypothetical scenario, I don't think it'd be on the realm of possibility for such a party to gain a couple of seats in, say, interior British Columbia, for example. The Wexit party, as it stands right now, is really more about trying to solidify a power base for Western Canada, for parts of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, and interior of British Columbia. It's really about creating a leverage or, or a negotiating tactic to try and secure more favors from Ottawa in the same way that the Bloc Québécois has traditionally done. The challenge that a Wexit party is going to have in that strategy is that we still don't have the population. Right. We, we just we just don't have the same kind of seats. We don't represent the same kind of threat. So I get what they're trying to do, but it is a pretty long road to hoe. And I think strategically it's it's a much harder path for Wexit to gain what it wants than a Quebec based party. Democratic candidate Joe Biden has won the U.S. presidential election after sealing victory in the battleground state of Pennsylvania. I want to congratulate President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. I'm looking forward to working with them both on the common challenges and opportunities facing our countries and our world. At issue, the future of the Keystone XL pipeline, a project worth billions to transport up to 830,000 barrels of oil a day from Alberta to Nebraska, then connecting on to the U.S. Gulf Coast. You can bet energy companies are calculating how a Biden presidency will affect them. Biden is going to be a green president, so I don't know what happens in the energy industry. Good morning, Hadrian. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us what your impression is of the uh, Biden climate plan and what are the impacts for Canada as you see them? Well, there are a lot of impacts for Canada, potentially. The big question is whether he does it. But yeah, it is is quite ambitious. It, it kind of falls short of the Green New Deal that a lot of progressives were calling for on kind of the left wing of the Democratic Party. 
But it is still a very ambitious plan. It includes $2 trillion in spending, which is a big number. A lot of regulatory changes, promises to re-engage with other countries. It, it really is ambitious and, and comprehensive. But like I said, the biggest question actually is not maybe is it serious? It's whether he can actually get it done. You know, I think it's so important that the U.S. has a, a plan that is a leader in the globe, because, of course, we know that the U.S. is one of the top emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. Let's delve into what's actually in this plan. You, you mentioned there's about $2 trillion worth of spending. I'd be very curious to sort of have a better sense of where that spending is going. Mm-hmm. So he's calling it a clean energy revolution. The promise is to get the country to 100 percent clean energy by 2050 which is also what Canada has committed to uh, independently. That involves a lot of basically direct spending from the government and then a whole, whole bunch of other policies, loans, financing, and so on. Part of what makes it interesting is that he's set aside a big chunk, around 40%, specifically for historically marginalized communities. So it's part of this idea of a just transition. So it's not just writing blank checks to the clean energy industry. It's also targeting where that money is going geographically and demographically. Sir, Hayden, I just want to make sure uh, my understanding is that he was going to net zero emissions by 2050. That's that's not the same thing as saying all energy will be renewable by 2050. Is that correct? Uh, you're right. He's, he's promised both, actually. So a net zero economy, including 100 percent clean energy. Ah, OK, got it. It is a more ambitious promise that Biden's made here and, and all the more challenging for it. What is the um, impact for the Canadian energy sector if the U.S. really does transition to net zero and eliminating the fossil fuel industry in the United States? Yeah, it's complicated, actually. It's probably on balance bad news for Canada's uh, oil and gas sector, especially. But there could be some benefits, too. Uh, In the medium term, if the U.S. actually did stop producing as much oil as it does now, that actually does increase demand for Canadian oil. So there's maybe a a silver lining there. But yeah, longer term, it's, it's a big concern. If the U.S. stops basically importing oil, ultimately, and stops consuming oil at all, it's, of course, going to be bad news for Canada's oil sector. But Canada is also a clean energy leader. So there may be opportunities for renewable energy exports, which is something we already do in eastern Canada. But again, it's kind of a question of timelines. So in like the very immediate term, there could be bad news in the form of the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, which Biden has promised to do. So that'd be bad news in the very short term. In the medium term, maybe good news as there's less competition for Canadian oil. But then in the long term, it's bad news again, because if the U.S. moves away from oil, it's going to be a lot easier for the rest of the world to do that, too. What do you see as the likelihood that Biden will follow through on his promise to turn thumbs down on the Keystone XL? It strikes me as being quite likely, especially compared to some of his other promises, partly because he's been quite unequivocal in opposing that pipeline during the campaign, but also because politically, it's kind of a win-win for him. He can signal that he's serious about climate change and to kind of hinder energy imports is not the same thing as as stopping oil production domestically. So I think politically, it, it makes a lot of sense for him to do it. Do you sort of see that there's a good chance under a Biden administration that he'll implement a carbon tax of some variety? Yeah, it's interesting that the platform kind of ambiguously talks about making sure polluters pay, um, which is the language that the Trudeau government uses as well. Um, it's uh, the, they'll they'll be the first to remind you that it's not a carbon tax; it's a regulatory surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions. But that being said, 
I think it's one of the least likely things Biden could get done just because it would require uh, the buy-in of basically all levels of government. It'd be very complicated. Um, and it's not very popular. Polling in Canada shows that carbon pricing is more or less accepted in most of the country now. It's not a done deal by any means. But there's a lot of opposition in the U.S. And some states have actually had carbon pricing as ballot measures that have failed. So it's uh, it's hard to just see happening nationally in the U.S. But a lot of states have tried to push ahead with it. California, of course, has had a cap and trade system for a long time. So I think we'll see more of that, um, that individual states or regions might go ahead with carbon pricing. But federally, I think quite unlikely in the U.S., at least in the next four years. And do you see any uh, particular investments in, for example, um, uh, electric vehicles? I mean, personally, I, I think that there's an enormous amount of promise in terms of the battery-powered vehicle sector that is only just beginning to be tapped. But is there any specific investment that you see in this plan that shows promise to you? So Biden has said that... Um, Cleaning up the transportation sector is a big priority. Um, one of the promises in the platform is requiring that all new vehicle sales be zero emission vehicles by a certain time. Um, I'm not sure if there's actually a date that he's named yet. And this is a policy we're seeing more and more. Um, BC has it now where dealers have to sell a certain proportion of, of electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on the kind of demand side. It's trying to just get get more people to buy them. And then the other side is the the production, the manufacturing of vehicles. And there may be some investment there in the Biden plan. Um, and we're starting to see Canadian governments do the same thing, trying to invest in manufacturing of zero emission vehicles, because that's where the, the market is moving. Hmm. It seems that Biden wants to put the United States at the forefront in the development of this technology sector, not only in electric vehicles, but also in uh, building stock. Uh, I see the target of reducing the carbon footprint of the U.S. building stock 50% by 2035. What are the economic drivers that you are seeing in the Biden plan? Well, the bottom line is that moving towards both energy efficiency and zero emission energy production are all just more economical. So even if you just put aside the kind of climate imperatives, um, it just makes dollars and cents to to move in this direction. Um, and that's why we've seen even like states like Texas, which is, of course, the oil heartland of the U.S., is also one of the biggest renewable energy leaders in the states and the, and the world, just because it's cheaper to do now. They, they produce more energy from renewables than from coal. And the Biden plan is basically uh, leaning on that, saying, yes, we're going to provide incentives. Yes, we're going to invest in a clean economy, a low carbon economy. But we're kind of banking on it being the the more economical option moving forward anyway. So the plan is not to just subsidize forever. It's to to scale up some of these technologies, scale up building retrofits and so on to the point where it just makes sense for for the market to do it on its own. How does the Biden plan compare with the liberal government's climate plan in terms of its ambition, scope and scale? I see that the Biden plan is uh, proposing to create 10 million good paying middle class union jobs. What are we seeing on the Canadian side? Yeah, that's actually it's good that you mentioned the jobs because that's been a little bit absent from the Canadian government's climate plan. So I think in terms of ambitions on emissions reductions, they're comparable. They're both looking at this zero carbon economy by 2050 and the investments are in like broadly the same areas. But the big difference is that Biden has framed it around jobs, just saying we are going to create green jobs first. We're going to reduce emissions as kind of a function of that, whereas the liberals haven't I think, been as strong on making the case for the the economic benefits of moving to a zero carbon economy. 
Politics aside, the actual underlying policies are quite similar, and there's a lot of opportunities for the countries to work together, especially on things like clean energy, on zero emission vehicles, and so on. Canada is always kind of uh, restricted by what the U.S. is doing. So if the U.S. is moving in the same direction, that that helps us. So I think that it's a pretty compelling argument that you know we will be using oil probably in a reduced capacity for the foreseeable future. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also noticing even a shift here in Alberta. They're, they're, in the last couple of weeks, they've announced measures like uh, more investment in hydrogen. Um, there's more conversation about geothermal. There's more conversation about natural gas. There's more conversation about this idea that whether we like it or not, um, companies and major companies are now diverse, divesting from the oil industry, and we just have to adapt to that. Does that parallel what you're kind of seeing in Canada? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you've everything you described there, I think, is a good summary of the situation, which is that, yes, we still need oil. Um, we, the, the world is still consuming more oil now than it ever has. Um, and even if it's reached peak oil, like some people have said, and even if the peak is coming in a few years, yeah, the bottom line is that we're shifting away from it, but we still use a lot of oil. And mm-hmm. and yeah, Alberta will have a role to play in that for years to come. Um, the question is, is what's the kind of slope of decline? And then what do you replace it with? So it's not irrational to want that su- the sector to succeed right now. Um, but the, but recognizing that we're going to be producing and consuming a lot less oil in 10, 20 or 30 years means we need to start planning now for what what fills the gap. So you mentioned some initiatives um, in whether it's in energy or other sectors. Those are important. But the scale really matters. It's not enough to have a few pilot projects to replace this, you know, many billions of dollars uh, oil and gas sector. Mm. Um, I, I just think about, you know, for example, the Alberta government invested $1.5 billion in, in the Keystone Pipeline earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that was a good strategic move. Maybe not if the, if the pipeline doesn't go ahead. But think about how much that $1.5 billion would do in a much smaller sector like clean tech or just the tech sector more broadly or almost any other industry, that money can go a long way just kind of trying to subsidize existing fossil fuel majors. It just just doesn't strike me as a very smart long-term strategy. Yeah. And I say further to that, one of the things that really, um, if you go back and you look at the history of the oil sands or the tar sands, whatever you want to call it, you know, that whole industry got off the ground over a 50-year period due to an enormous amount of investment in, in in government attention, government capital, the way we managed our royalty reviews. Like there, there was there was a whole lot of private and public sector finagling that managed to get that industry off the ground. Uh, absolutely, um, it is a bit of a myth that the oil sector just kind of happened in Alberta. Um, yeah, no, no, that did not. It did not just happen. <laughs> no, it was a it was a deliberate strategy. The tar sands were were. Ex- when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Economically unviable. We knew about them for a long, long, long time. I mean, you know, as we know, we know First Nations people knew about the tar sands for hundreds and hundreds, of, if not thousands of years. But it took an extraordinary amount of technical innovation to actually make those economically viable and profitable. You know, this isn't, this isn't new for Alberta. No, not at all. I mean, uh, th- what you're talking about is an industrial strategy, which is kind of yes. a, a dirty word in, in Canadian politics often. But I think we have to recognize that that's what every other country is doing right now. They are making yeah. strategic investments. They're picking and choosing which industries uh, are going to be the bedrock of their economy moving forward. And if we don't make similar choices at the federal level, at the provincial level, we are going to fall behind. It's kind of a key moment right now uh, as this transition is happening to set ourselves up for success in the long term. And while all of this sounds very, very positive and exciting in in many respects, have you done an analysis on how much uh, not being able to control the Senate is going to clip the wings of the of the uh, Biden climate plan? Yeah, it's a big it's a big issue, um, especially around the spending the spending points. So the kind of two trillion dollar. Green New Deal that he's not calling a Green New Deal is going to be a much harder without the Senate. I mean, the Senate will probably agree to some kind of stimulus and Biden can make part of that a green stimulus, but it will be more restricted for sure. There are a lot of things he can do without Congress at all, especially on the regulatory side. So he's already promised to basically reset everything Trump did over the last four years on the environmental policy side enhance things like a clean fuel standard, not automotive regulations. There's a lot he can do on his own, a lot of important things. He can re-engage with other countries internationally. He can strengthen a lot of the science and tech and R&D side of, of climate policy in the U.S. So there is a lot he can do, but it, it is limited. It's the kind of transformational reimagining the economy stuff is much harder to do without, without all of government. How are Trudeau and Biden's priorities at odds where energy and climate are concerned? Do you think that there are going to be a lot of conflicts between the two countries? In principle, they're very much aligned. Um, Like I said, they've set the same long-term target. They've said a lot of the same things in terms of the importance of um, acting on climate change and the responsibility to future generations and so on. I mean, rhetorically, they're very much aligned. I think the biggest issues are going to be around trade policy, actually. So the Keystone issue, of course, will be one of the first, I think, to come to a head with Biden saying he wants to stop Keystone. It was one of the first things the Trudeau government actually said after Biden's victory was announced, was saying we are going to defend Keystone, uh, Keystone XL pipeline. Mm. Um, but longer term, I mean, Biden has made a big point of, of trying to emphasize buy American policies. So so kind of nationalizing his his clean energy revolution. And that's going to be a challenge for for Canada, who's tries to, I mean, the U.S. is our biggest market. Also, I, I wouldn't be shocked, although I don't know how much money I would put on this, but I wouldn't be shocked if you did f- see Biden more or less just ignore his promise to cancel Keystone XL simply because it's not worth the cross-border hassle. Especially if he loses the Senate, he's not going to get enough points with his more progressive wing by doing it because it's not on the, it's not really a topic that's massively on the table in, in the United States right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if other domestic issues just take priority over it. Yeah, it's interesting, his relationship to the kind of progressive wing of the party. I mean, he definitely had to get them on side for the election campaign and did so and won the election. So I think it's an open question how beholden he is to that progressive arm of the party now that he's uh, in government. Or better, I I think it's more of a question of like, he's got to throw that wing a bone. Is this going to be the bone he throws? So what what's going to be the calculus as to Keystone XL versus another kind of domestic policy, right? 
Mm-hmm. That would be my question, but I'm not I'm not clued in enough to American politics to make that guess. But I would be willing to put like maybe like ten dollars on a bet that he's going to try and make Keystone go away. Well, I won't take that bet. I think it's certainly a possibility. <laughs> yeah, my own take on that is that uh, having said no to Medicare for all and no to defund the police, I think it's pretty obvious that that uh, he's looking to his environmental policy as what he's going to give the uh, the progressive wing. Hadrian, what is the number one positive uh, development? for Canada out of the Biden election from the climate side? I think the number one thing is that the U.S. will no longer be getting in the way, Mm. hopefully. (laughs) I mean, we don't know for sure yet. Um, But it's been a huge challenge for Canada and for every other country that's in the, the United States orbit to move ahead on climate policy when we're so dependent on the U.S. economy and in so many different ways, so afraid of the competitiveness impacts of moving first. So the fact that the U.S. is going to be at least at the very least rhetorically and hopefully at a policy level in line with Canada and the rest of the world allows us to move forward. And it kind of gets rid of the excuse that a lot of Canadian politicians have had for four years of saying, well, we can't do this first because the U.S. hasn't done it or the U.S. isn't taking this seriously. And I mean, there's been there's been a rationale behind that. I mean, you know, you could eliminate every single greenhouse gas emission from Canada and it really wouldn't make a dent if the United States and China don't make some significant moves. But I think you're quite right to note that um, now that uh, America does look like it's going to take some serious policy course corrections, Canada is really going to have no no choice but to follow suit. Yeah, you'd hope so, especially in areas like carbon pricing, where the concern is always the competitiveness piece to see uh, our biggest trading partner move ahead, if not with carbon pricing, at least with regulations that kind of meet the same goals. Um, it does make it easier for our business to to make these shifts. Does Canada have anything of strategic importance to the Biden presidency, to the Biden administration that can help, say, sweeten the pot for concessions. I'm thinking, for instance, his policy has called for putting climate back on the global on the global agenda. Is there anything that Canada has to offer that can pay off in concessions to Canada down the road? Yeah, there are probably a few things. The, the ones that come to mind are first just as you've kind of outlined, having an ally on the international stage is important um, to support the U.S. uh, and kind of help find agreement between the U.S. and other countries who might be at different places in their climate policies. The second is that we already have such integrated economies that there's a real harm to the U.S. if the Canadian economy isn't working kind of in lockstep. So there's a real incentive just economically to be cooperating And then third, kind of specifically, is that Canada already produces and has the capacity to export a lot of clean energy. And if Biden is serious about this, you know, 100% renewable electricity promise, it's probably going to involve imports of clean energy from Canada. And we're already seeing some of that in BC, um, in Quebec, and, and elsewhere, where we already have a lot of the infrastructure to help the U.S. meet those targets. Are there any other types of areas where you think that Canada could be investing in order to be part of this particular solution and use this as an economic opportunity? The hydro is a big one. The potential for electric vehicles is there. I mean, we've seen this, we saw this high profile announcement of Ford um, getting help from the federal and provincial governments in Ontario to build more electric vehicles. So that could be, again, part of this cooperation with the U.S., and then we'll see uh, what other investments we make. Um, I mean, we, we could move ahead with other kinds of renewable energy. I know there's a lot of research happening in Canada around things like geothermal, solar and wind. 
and we've got a lot of expertise in those areas, but they, we haven't really scaled those industries up yet. Um, but we are arguably further ahead than the U.S. in some respects, um, and we could we could be exporting that that know-how and some of the technology. Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood, thank you so much for your comprehensive overview of the of the Biden climate plan and what it means for Canada. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. So, Jen, what did you think of Hadrian Merkins Kirkwood's view on what our future looks like with a Biden presidency? You know, I was a little bit nervous about having him on here because he uh, he's from the um, uh, Center for Policy Alternatives. And I'm always a little bit nervous that whenever we're going to get someone from that organization on, it's going to be a big fight between me and them. But <laughs> I'm kidding. I thought that he had a pretty reasonable measured take on the future of oil and also a pretty informative take on, on Biden's energy policy. So on the whole, I thought that uh, he was great electrification and solar, wind power, and especially advances in battery technology are now starting to gallop along so quickly, and they are drawing venture capital at such a spectacular rate. It'll be interesting to see the next decade. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I actually bought uh, an electric bike this year, and um, all through the best uh, parts of the year, I was, I was riding that thing everywhere, and I'm in love with it. And I am now on the, the pathways in Calgary, and I'm seeing electric bikes, and I'm seeing uh, various different types of electric vehicles all over the place. And to be honest with you, this is part of the reason why I have a lot of uh, hope and expectation that, for especially for personal transportation, there's a big future in EV. That said, you know, it's interesting to me that a lot of the conservative premiers and a lot of the conservative governments seem to be making these sorts of investments and moves towards especially a small modular nuclear reactors. I think that that is going to play out well for them and prove to have been a, a prescient move in the long run. Although, you know what, maybe I'll be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an interesting thing to me because it's almost like a only Nixon can go to China kind of thing. Maybe only the conservative premiers can can actually make the investments in, in, in nuclear. But I actually think that that is going to be where a significant chunk of our energy mix is going to come from, particularly if we, when we start shifting more and more toward electric vehicles and our demand for electricity is going to go up. So I have some, you know, reasonable optimism on, on a lot of those files. I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic, and especially when you see the um, leaps and bounds that are happening in China and how fast the adoption is starting is starting to happen there. Um, they have really invested in it, and and just the idea that America wants to get on board and become a global leader in in this sector, it's going to be a very exciting time. And I think there is reason to be optimistic. So here's hoping. I'd make one final comment just about Alberta is that I know it's going to be hard for Alberta to go through the next 10, 20 years. And there's a lot of pessimism in Alberta about the future of oil. I don't think oil is going away. And let's also be blunt about the state of Alberta right now. Things are pretty rough in Alberta, but they're not that rough. They're just rougher than they have previously been. There's a big difference between no longer in a boom economy and flat dead broke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Alberta's still in pretty good shape economically um, compared to a lot of other places in Canada, to be blunt. So I think sometimes that we in Alberta lose some some perspective on the type of strengths that we actually have as an economy and the type of hope that we should still be enjoying. Just stop attaching that optimism and that hope to one single industry. Mailbag. This week's mailbag question comes from Gregory Murray over Twitter. Gregory wants to know whether Aaron O'Toole building a big tent for conservatives is a concern. Quote, if the only thing holding the CPC big tent together is a dislike of Justin Trudeau, how can they expect to form coherent policies and govern? Over to you, Jen. 
Well, the first thing I would say is that I kind of reject the premise of the question. I don't think that the only thing holding the CPC Big Ten together is a dislike of Justin Trudeau. I just don't. <laughs> it's a <pretty laughs> I, I, big one, though. Don't get me wrong. I think that people in the CPC dislike Trudeau just fine. But I, I don't think that the, you're going to see a, an ideological or schismatic fracturing of, a fracturing of the party if all of a sudden Christia Freeland's in power or another liberal or even Jagmeet Singh's in power. So I, I just... I don't think that's what's tying them together. I think that there is lots of internal conversation um, within the CPC about, you know, what they stand for and what their ideological priorities are going to be. And, you know, part of that is kind of happening internally. So oftentimes when you see op-eds from uh, people within the Conservative Party sort of making these kinds of claims, you you should be taking it with an understanding that these are conversations that Conservatives are trying to have with other conservatives in order to build factions for particular policy sets within that big tent. Right now, I think there's an internal conversation happening in the party about, for example, climate change policies and carbon tax policies and a sense that, you know, perhaps we allowed ourselves to get to ideologically sidetracked under Harper and and, and Scheer, and maybe the focus really needs to be back on accountability and ethics and low taxes, that, that kind of stuff. But you know, whatever ideological muddledness is going on within that tent, I I don't think that that is the same thing as saying that it's not a cohesive party or that it, it's only held together by visceral hatred of Justin Trudeau. I, I just don't think that's accurate. At the same time, I do think that in order for the Conservative Party to form government, they need to appeal across the country. And I do think that the impulses in, say, um, the center of power, which is Alberta right now, I take your point that there may be internal discussions going on right now. The one thing that I I think is a, is a real concern for the Conservative Party is the oversize, completely outsized influence of the noise coming from south of the border from the Donald Trump faction, where I think there's a lot of sentiment in certain sectors of the Conservative Party that is very sympathetic to Donald Trump. And I think that that means trouble for a big tent party. Yeah, I I mean, a couple of points there. One is that the factionalism that you're describing is normal within any big tent party. Talk to people in the liberals. You're going to talk. You're going to hear those kinds of internal fights going on there. I, I mean, that's that's very ordinary. And I think that if there's one takeaway that I have just from talking to conservatives over the last year or two, it's that there's an overwhelming understanding that the really fringy alt right stuff is not going to play in Canada. I think Maxime Bernier's lack of success basically put an end to that as being effective. Now, I think you might see a slightly softer version of that with O'Toole. So you you see a little bit of O'Toole talking about, you know, standing up for Johnny McDonald statues or whatever. I think that's a pretty much a world apart from what Donald Trump is or, or, or is doing. So I don't think that that's quite on the same level. But I also just think that most conservatives understand that that kind of extreme far right culture war stuff coming from south of the border just isn't really getting them any votes. There's just not enough people who are that online, to be blunt, um, mm-hmm. to actually make a, a viable um, coalition of, of voters. I do think that that is a good way to bring in fundraisers, and it's a good way to bring in potentially emails. But um, And that's why you see a lot of it, particularly on Twitter, right? But does that actually translate into people who are willing to volunteer, people who are willing to door knock, and most importantly, people who are willing to vote? I think that the the conversion rate on that kind of stuff has been really low. This is the internal tension that the Conservative Party always deals with. And that was in order to, to actually successfully govern, you more or less have to govern from the center. 
So, you know, you you gain leadership by by appealing to a relatively small and committed fan base. And then when you make that transition into a governing party, you have to occupy the center plus one. So wherever the center is, that's kind of where the majority of the votes actually are. Everybody fundamentally deals with this, that when you get into power, there's a sort of a softening and a moderation of your policies in order to maintain it. And if you want to see what happens if you don't moderate your power, you lose power like Trump just did. And so this is a bit of an internal battle where, you know, True blue conservatives always feel slightly uncomfortable when when the conservative leader starts to take a more moderate position on things or starts to to, to try try on policies that um, would traditionally be uh, owned by the left. Um, and there's always like internal friction there. But again, that is completely ordinary for big tent politics. If you have a question you'd like to ask us, you can write to us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or tweet us at oppocast. That's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two more weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at Oppo at CanadaLandShow.com or on Twitter at OppoCast. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production from Kate McIntosh, Rosalind Kafour, and Damalola Onime. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.